Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 15 Mr. Rochester did, on a future occasion, explain it. It was one afternoon when he chanced to meet me and Adele in the grounds, and while she played with Pilot and her shuttlecock, he asked me to walk up and down along Beach Avenue within sight of her. He then said that she was the daughter of a French opera dancer, Céline Varennes, towards whom he had once cherished what he called a grand passion. This passion Céline had professed to return with even superior ardor. He thought himself her idol, ugly as he was. He believed, as he said, that she preferred his tile d'athlète to the elegance of the Apollo Belvedere. And, Miss Eyre, so much was I flattered by this preference of the Gallic sylph for her British gnome, that I installed her in an hotel, gave her a complete establishment of servants, a carriage, cashmeres, diamonds, dentelles, etc., in short. I began the process of ruining myself in the received style, like any other spoony. I had not, it seems, the originality to chalk out a new road to shame and destruction, but trod the old track with stupid exactness, not to deviate an inch from the beaten center. I had, as I deserved to have, the fate of all other spoonies. Happening to call one evening when Celine did not expect me, I found her out. But it was a warm night, and I was tired with strolling through Paris, so I sat down in her boudoir, happy to breathe the air consecrated so lately by her presence. No. I exaggerate. I never thought there was any consecrating virtue about her. It was rather a sort of pastille perfume she had left, a scent of musk and amber, than an odor of sanctity. I was just beginning to stifle with the fumes of conservatory flowers and sprinkled essences when I bethought myself to open the window and step out onto the balcony. It was moonlight and gaslight besides, and very still and serene. The balcony was furnished with a chair or two. I sat down and took out a cigar. I will take one now, if you will excuse me. Here ensued a pause, filled up by the producing and lighting of a cigar. Having placed it to his lips and breathed a trail of Havana incense on the freezing and sunless air, he went on. I liked bonbons too in those days, Miss Eyre, and I was croquant, overlooked the barbarism, croquant, chocolate, comfits, and smoking, alternately, watching meantime. The equipages that rolled along the fashionable streets toward the neighboring opera house. 
when, in an elegant close carriage drawn by a beautiful pair of English horses, and distinctly seen in the brilliant city night, I recognized the voiture I had given Celine. She was returning, of course, my heart thumped with impatience against the iron rails I leaned upon. The carriage stopped, as I had expected, at the hotel door. My flame, that is the very word for an opera, inamorata, alighted, though muffled in a cloak, an unnecessary encumbrance, by the by, on so warm a June evening, I knew her instantly by her little foot seen peeping from the skirt of her dress as she skipped from the carriage step. Bending over the balcony, I was about to murmur, mon ange, in a tone, of course, which should be audible to the ear of love alone, when a figure jumped from the carriage after her, cloaked also, but that was a spurred heel which had rung on the pavement, and that was a hatted head which now passed under the arched porta cochere of the hotel. You never felt jealousy, did you, Miss Eyre? Of course not. I need not ask you, because you never felt love. You have both sentiments yet to experience. Your soul sleeps. The shock is yet to be given which shall waken it. You think all existence lapses in as quiet a flow as that in which your youth has hitherto slid away. Floating on with closed eyes and muffled ears, you neither see the rocks bristling not far off in the bed of the flood, nor hear the breakers boil at their base. But I tell you, and you may mark my words, you will come some day to a craggy pass in the channel where the whole of life's stream will be broken up into whirl and tumult, foam and noise. Either you will be dashed to atoms on crag points or lifted up and borne on by some master wave into a calmer current, as I am now. I like this day. I like that sky of steel. I like the sternness and stillness of the world under this frost. I like Thornfield, its antiquity, its retirement, its old crow trees and thorn trees, its gray facade and lines of dark windows reflecting that metal welkin. And yet how long have I abhorred the very thought of it, shunned it like a great plague house? How I do still abhor. He ground his teeth and was silent. He arrested his step and struck his boot against the hard ground. Some hated thought seemed to have him in its grip and to hold him so tightly that he could not advance. We were ascending the avenue when he thus paused. The hall was before us. Lifting his eye to its battlements, he cast over them a glare such as I never saw before or since. Pain, shame, ire, impatience, disgust, detestation— seemed momentarily to hold a quivering conflict in the large pupil dilating under his ebon eyebrow. Wild was the wrestle, which should be paramount. But another feeling rose and triumphed, something hard and cynical, self-willed and resolute. It settled his passion and petrified his countenance. He went on, during the moment I was silent, Miss Eyre, I was arranging a point with my destiny. She stood there, by that beech trunk, a hag like one of those who appeared to Macbeth on the heath of fours 
you like Thornfield, she said, lifting her finger, and then she wrote in the air a memento which ran in lurid hieroglyphics all along the house front between the upper and lower row of windows. Like it if you can, like it if you dare. I will like it, said I. I dare like it. And, he subjoined moodily, I will keep my word. I will break obstacles to happiness, to goodness. Yes, goodness. I wish to be a better man than I have been, than I am. As Job's leviathan broke the spear, the dart, and the hebergion, hindrances, which others count as iron and brass, I will esteem but straw and rotten wood. Adele here ran before him with her shuttlecock. Away! he cried harshly. Keep at a distance, child, or go in to Sophie. Continuing, then, to pursue his walk in silence, I ventured to recall him to the point whence he had abruptly diverged. Did you leave the balcony, sir? I asked. When Mademoiselle Varennes entered? I almost expected a rebuff for this hardly well-timed question, but on the contrary, waking out of his scowling abstraction, he turned his eyes towards me, and the shade seemed to clear off his brow. Oh, I had forgotten Celine. Well, to resume, when I saw my charmer thus come in accompanied by a cavalier, I seemed to hear a hiss and the green snake of jealousy rising on undulating coils from the moonlit balcony, glided within my waistcoat and ate its way in two minutes to my heart's core. Strange, he exclaimed, suddenly starting again from the point. Strange that I should choose you for the confidant of all this, young lady. Passing strange that you should listen to me quietly as if it were the most usual thing in the world for a man like me to tell stories of his opera mistresses to a quaint, inexperienced girl like you. But the last singularity explains the first, as I intimated once before. You, with your gravity, considerateness, and caution, were made to be the recipient of secrets. Besides, I know what sort of mind I have placed in communication with my own. I know it is not one liable to take infection. It is a peculiar mind, it is a unique one. Happily, I do not mean to harm it, but if I did, it would not take harm from me. The more you and I converse, the better, for while I cannot blight you, you may refresh me. After this digression, he proceeded. I remained in the balcony. They will come to her boudoir, no doubt, thought I. Let me prepare an ambush. So... Putting my hand in through the open window, I drew the curtain over it, leaving only an opening through which I could take observations. Then I closed the casement all but a chink just wide enough to furnish an outlet to lovers' whispered vows. Then I stole back to my chair, and as I resumed it, the pair came in. My eye was quickly at the aperture. Celine's chambermaid entered, lit a lamp, left it on the table, and withdrew. The couple were thus revealed to me clearly. Both removed their cloaks, and there was, the Varennes shining in satin and jewels, my gifts, of course. And there was her companion in an officer's uniform, 
and I knew him for a young roux of a viscount, a brainless and vicious youth whom I had sometimes met in society, and had never thought of hating because I despised him so absolutely. On recognizing him, the fang of the snake jealousy was instantly broken, because at the same moment my love for Celine sank under an extinguisher. A woman who could betray me for such a rival was not worth contending for. She deserved only scorn. Less, however, than I, who had been her dupe. They began to talk. Their conversation eased me completely. Frivolous, mercenary, heartless, and senseless. It was rather calculated to weary than enrage a listener. A card of mine lay on the table. This, being perceived, brought my name under discussion. Neither of them possessed energy or wit to belabor me soundly, but they insulted me as coarsely as they could in their little way, especially Celine, who even waxed rather brilliant on my personal defects, deformities, she termed them. Now it had been her custom to launch out into fervent admiration of what she called my beauty mall, wherein she deferred diametrically from you, who told me point-blank at the second interview that you did not think me handsome. Contrast struck me at the time, and Adele here came running up again. Monsieur, John has just been to say that your agent is cold and wishes to see you. Ah, in that case I must abridge. Opening the window, I walked in upon them, liberated Celine from my protection, gave her notice to vacate her hotel, offered her a purse for immediate exigencies, disregarded screams, hysterics, prayers, protestations, convulsions, made an appointment with the Vicomte for a meeting at the Bois de Boulogne. Next morning I had the pleasure of encountering him, left a bullet in one of his poor, etoliated arms, feeble as the wing of a chicken in the pip. And then I thought I had done with the whole crew. But, unluckily, the Varens, six months before, had given me this fillette, Adele, who, she affirmed, was my daughter. And perhaps she may be, though I see no proofs of such grim paternity written in her countenance. Pilate is more like me than she. Some years after I had broken with the mother, she abandoned her child and ran away to Italy with a musician or singer. I acknowledged no natural claim on Adele's part to be supported by me, nor do I now acknowledge any, for I am not her father. But hearing that she was quite destitute, I even took the poor thing out of the slime and mud of Paris and transplanted it here to grow up clean in the wholesome soil of an English country garden. Mrs. Fairfax found you to train it, but now you know that it is the illegitimate offspring of a French opera girl, you will perhaps think differently of your post and protégé. You will be coming to me some day with notice that you have found another place that you beg me to look out for a new governess, etc., eh? No. Adele is not answerable for either her mother's faults or yours. I have a regard for her, and now that I know she is, in a sense, parentless, forsaken by her mother and disowned by you, sir, 
I shall cling closer to her than before. How could I possibly prefer the spoiled pet of a wealthy family who would hate her governess as a nuisance to a lonely little orphan who leans towards her as a friend? Oh, that is the light in which you view it. Well, I must go in now, and to you it darkens. But I stayed out a few minutes longer with Adele and Pilot, ran a race with her, and played a game of bottle door and shuttlecock. When we went in, and I had removed her bonnet and coat, I took her on my knee, kept her there an hour, allowing her to prattle as she liked, not rebuking even some little freedoms and trivialities to which she was apt to stray when much noticed, and which betrayed in her a superficiality of character inherited probably from her mother, hardly congenial to an English mind. Still, she had her merits— and I was disposed to appreciate all that was good in her to the utmost. I sought in her countenance and features a likeness to Mr. Rochester, but found none. No trait, no turn of expression announced relationship. It was a pity. If she could but have been proved to resemble him, he would have thought more of her. To be continued. Hey, I wanted to let you know about a new partnership that Definitely Storytime has with a company called Salty Llama. You may have seen them in the news or advertised by real people on social media. They are focused on sustainability around one of our biggest pollution challenges, laundry. Now, I know I don't like lugging those heavy and wasteful jugs around, measuring, spilling, the drippy goo around the opening and the cap, the bother of trying to get the last bit out of the container because you don't want to waste it, then having to put that monster jug in the recycling where it takes up a lot of space in the bin and probably isn't even being recycled because so few plastics actually are. Well, I'm here with good news. We can spare ourselves all of that hassle and waste with Salty Llama laundry sheets. They are made from natural ingredients. There's even one for sensitive skin. They come in a compostable fiber-based sleeve and are super light for you and to transport as they produce only 4% of the CO2 emissions of regular laundry detergent transportation. And even better, they are pre-measured for small, medium, and large loads, so you just have to tear off the size you need. No waste, no goo, no spills and drips, no turning the bottle upside down waiting for a slow drizzle to get the last bit out. None of that. And if you aren't totally convinced, it is risk-free because they have a 100% money-back guarantee, no questions asked, and free shipping throughout the U.S., U.K., and Europe, all because they care and are committed to helping our planet. So head over to saltylama.com, 1L, a direct link can be found in with my other links in the podcast description, and you can use my affiliate code, definitely storytime, no spaces, for 10% off to help you, and I mean all of us, really. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>